Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Mindy, what headlines have you been following lately? Well, Jen, I think the most probably prevalent headline we've seen over the last couple weeks was the Texas abortion ban that was signed into law by Republican Governor Greg Abbott. I mean, it's an extremely conservative and restrictive piece of legislation. You know, and even more interesting than that is it made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, who voted in a five to four ruling on the whole women's health versus Jackson to deny an emergency appeal from the abortion providers and others that sought to block the enforcement of this Texas law. So, you know, I think the reason it's such a a big piece of headline news is twofold. I mean, first and foremost, right, um, I think the impact of women's health is something that cannot be denied when you see how restrictive this piece of legislation is. And I think there's also a likely contagion effect for other more conservative states that see what Texas has been able to do and might have an interest in passing similar laws. I think the greater theme around what we've seen coming out of this headline is just the level of state activism that we are seeing right now, where states are really taking healthcare policy into their own hands and really pressing their own agenda. And whether it is conservative states that are focusing on areas that are of interest to them from a policy perspective, or states that are really focusing on trying to push their agenda around broader access. I think we're seeing a level of activism with states that we have not seen in quite a while. And it it spans from you know, focusing on on this piece of legislation around abortion, all the way to drug pricing and importation, or things like global budgets and even mask mandates. I think while healthcare definitely is national, we certainly are seeing states become much more active when it comes to policymaking, which is where the local piece comes into play. I completely agree. This kind of collision course between states' rights and the federal law is interesting. And I think, you know, there is a federal law when it comes to uh, reproductive rights uh, called the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. So I was just doing some research on this and, and it's called the FACE Act. And so there's a vigilante clause in the Texas law that goes in stark contrast to the federal FACE laws, which really protects these clinics. Um, and the threat of force or intimidation in some of these women's health clinics. So it is such a fascinating microcosm of what we're seeing across the country, as you mentioned, um, around many elements of healthcare, not just abortion, but mask mandates and access to care um, that should we should stay really close to. Speaking of a core piece of our national health care, Medicare trustees released a report um, towards the end of August that found that Medicare spent $925.8 billion in 2020 and served 62.6 million people, but more importantly, that they project their hospital fund to run out in 2026. It's quite an interesting piece of news. And just to kind of ground ourselves, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is the federal agency that runs the Medicare program and CMS in itself 
is a branch of the Department of Health and Human Services. So they monitor both Medicare and Medicaid programs and Medicaid offered by the state. You know, there's a theme here today around state and federal law, but Medicare, which is federally run, is paid for or funded by two trust funds, right? And, and they're held by the U.S. Treasury. So I think it's really important to understand the root of all of this. You had mentioned that Medicare trustees project this, this fund or these funds to run out in 2026. And a reminder, everyone, that is less than five years away. And if you think about those two trusts, which are the hospital insurance trust, um, and, and that trust fund is um, provided its solvency through payroll taxes, which are paid by us employees, employers themselves, and then self-employed people across the country. And it's supplementarily um, funded by income taxes on social security, some of the premiums from Medicare Part A who aren't eligible for premium free. So, so there's you can tell some of these elements that we know are not getting well-funded in the last couple of years during due to employment rates in this country. So there's really no good news around how this is gonna be refunded. And then the second way that Medicare is funded is through the second trust fund, which is the supplementary medical insurance. And that is authorized by Congress. So that is coming from the government. And I, I believe those, those are covered from premiums of people who are enrolled in other parts of Medicare, which is part B and part D. So anyway, there, there's such an interesting deeper dive on this. Um, I think that we can expect the amount of payroll taxes to be collected to be greatly reduced in this year as well. So like I said, there's, there's some troubling news for that. There are great expansion ideas and thoughts with the federal government of how to expand Medicare to create more access. Um, if you think about, there's lots of things that are not covered right now by Medicare long-term care with an aging population in the U.S., most dental care, most vision care. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see how those grand, great ideas move forward when we hear about this recent insolvency. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, Ryan, that's such a good point. There's so much um, contrast right now or tension between the lofty goals that an administration has and some of the concerns around financing and funding and how do you have an expansion, expansionary agenda um, if there's already uh, enough concern around um, how you finance that agenda. So um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading this report, though, is that I wonder if it's really just the adequacy of funding for Part A Medicare being the issue, or is it really about how do you modernize a program, right, that was issued in 1965 and make it more sustainable so that it syncs with the types of future demands that we're seeing for health services and have some of the regulatory foresight around prices and costs? I mean, we've talked about the fact that the Medicare program is pretty hamstrung when it comes to negotiating drug prices, right, or when it comes to being able to... Um, really think about things like dental and vision being a part of, of the services that are covered. And so I think there's an element of the funding piece of it that definitely makes headline news. But the other piece of it is almost a challenge, I think, to this program on how do you modernize the program to reflect 
what members and, and users of the Medicare program need and want going forward. So I thought that was interesting. I also, you know, Ryan, I think we were talking about the the MedPAC, right, which is the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission that advises Congress on Medicare. Um, you know, and some of the challenges that, or some of the, the recommendations that they've made um, to try to deal with the issues that are confronting Medicare. I think the biggest frustration for everybody is that, just generally speaking, Congress continues to just kick this can down the road, hoping that there'll be some magic, you know, magic solution to all of that. And as you mentioned, 2026 is not far away, and it is going to take a lot of conversation and I think negotiation to get to a point where Medicare is on solid footing. Um, and that likely will be the rest of this administration's charge in trying to figure that out. It's not all doom and gloom. I think there have been some conversations about this and there is a panel of experts and convened by the Urban Institute and that's a think tank. And they're, they're discussing reforms that they do believe can shore up and help close this gap a little bit. And, you know, they range from shifting who pays for home health services because, um, you know, Part A, which is the Medicare that we're talking about, pays for one third of home health spending and it could be shifted to another part of Medicare. Um, you know, what we haven't talked about is Medi Medicare Advantage profits, right? And they're having a banner year or a banner couple of years and Medicare Advantage plans could help um, shore up some of this by targeting some of their record profits. Oh, another uh, way that they could shore up payment is changing how MA payments are calculated. And a reminder that this think tank and, and MPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which advises Congress on these issues, actually called for a change on how MA plans are calculated and cut payments by 2%, which would add billions to this fund. So they're just some of the ideas and, you know, other things like changing provider reimbursements, um, which is a hot topic in health systems across the country, actually, and even controlling some of these high cost drugs that we've talked about in prior podcasts are just some of the many ideas that are getting floated around um, to help shore up some of these insolvency issues with Medicare. I do think, though, they're chipping away at this. I don't know that when you add all these savings up that it's enough. Right. Like that's the only thing I'd leave you with is that I, I think these are good first starts, but in aggregate, they probably still don't solve the underlying issue of insolvency. And so I think that begs the question then in terms of like, how do you modernize this program? Right. So you're not dealing with this every couple of years. Yes, it's definitely something that could probably benefit from a more transformational change and paradigm shift in how the program is funded and administered to sort of meet with that future time demands of healthcare. Another area where we're looking at transformational change and futuristic healthcare is really around gene therapy and the huge amount of progress they've made in the last decade. What we've been seeing recently is this FDA committee really taking on complex questions around safety as we're getting some lessons learned from therapies like Zolgensma and Luxturna, right, for, for rare diseases. So there was a recent two-day summit by the FDA where they really looked at these gene therapies and the long-term effects to see what are the adverse events that are resulting and what are some of the, the primary safety concerns and how might they address this going forward because it is 
something that will only continue to grow in demand. We saw that more than 40 therapies using popular gene therapy vectors were submitted to the FDA in 2020 for early consultation ahead of human testing, and more than 10 were in consideration for human testing last year. Yeah, and I think it speaks, Jen, to the great hope that we have, right, for cell and gene therapy and potentially being able to address rare diseases where there is no therapy currently in place or even addressing curative types of outcomes. So there's a ton of great hope. I think in the same vein, there's still a lot that we don't know. And so when we're thinking about the cell and gene therapy world, the reality is going to be that the focus on safety, you know, on post-market surveillance, on things like risk risk management programs, REMS programs are all probably going to be part of how cell and gene therapies have to go to market. You know, just more formal risk assessments and patients in future trials and, and thinking about that. Because I think to the point that you had made when we were off mic, right, is that the train has really left the station. You know, there is a lot of investment in cell and gene therapy. There's definitely a belief that this is the wave of the future when it comes to therapeutics in the life sciences industry. And so now it's it's really identifying when products are actually getting out into the market, what that risk reward benefit is, and, and um, how different types of potential adverse events or risks need to be addressed around these products as they they come up, right? And ensuring that safety is still like number one for patients when it comes to cell and gene therapy. Yeah, I think the tenor of the conversation was really about preparing ourselves for the future to be able to make informed decisions since the nature of these therapies are irreversible, right? We need to be really looking at that long tail of data to make sure that they do have that safety so that we can make informed risk benefit decisions as well as be able to gather all the data now so that we're able to see how it plays out over time. It certainly would not be a podcast if we were not talking about data and evidence, because I think we see that play out in almost every aspect of healthcare. Now, here we are talking about it again. Um, but I do think that's that's a critical point that you make, Jen, is that we need to be taking in the data, looking at it, analyzing it, and then figuring out uh, what the best evidence is that supports right moving forward with these types of therapies. Thanks, Mindy and Ryan. As always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.